This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries. Eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Saturday, June 22nd, we destroyed Gina's Grill in Indianapolis, Indiana. It's the Bad Boys and Tracy. It's the Ohio Podcast, Mysterious Circumstances, and Hillbilly Horror Stories. And all the way from Australia, it's Natasha Anchor, a.k.a. Amber from the Hillbilly Whorehouse. Buy your tickets now and help us this place up. See you there. See you there. See you there. See you Hey, guys, and welcome to episode 145. I'm Jerry. I'm Tracy. Fantastic. We're not even really here. It's your imagination. Not quite. No. It's the ability to pre-record. <laughs> kind of the same thing, though. Too sorry. So here's the situation. We're in Houston for the live show, and we um, don't have the ability to record while we're there. We could have, but, I mean, it would have required us bringing all of our equipment and stuff. So we just decided, like we usually do on vacation, we picked one of our Patreon shows that uh, the Patreon subscribers said that we should put up. Mm-hmm. Put it to a poll, and this is the one that they chose by a huge amount. Oh, good. So, hopefully you guys are into some more rock and roll in the occult, because that's what... What oh, the hell was that? Sorry, guys. I belched. My bad. <laughs> I like how you just act like we were just going to skip right past that. I thought you maybe that. didn't hear it. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, you did burp into a microphone. Oh, I'm yeah. pretty sure a lot of people heard it. Sorry, y'all. My bad manners. I'm surprised you didn't blame it on Ninja. Nah. So, anyways... We're going to um, obviously still thank all of our military and civil servants <laughs> all over the world, no matter who you represent. Thank Absolutely. you for what you do. And I also want to bring up the suicide hotline, 1-800-275-8255. The text line is 741-741. And just a reminder, if you're feeling down and out, if you're just having some bad stuff going in life, uh, if for some reason you suffer from depression, Reach out, talk to somebody, friend, neighbor, one of these hotline numbers or text lines, or send us a message, or join our group, Hillbilly Horror Stories group on Facebook. And trust me, there are tons of people in there who are willing to tell you how great you are. Absolutely. We love you guys. So with that being said, we uh, are going to do this Patreon episode, and it's a good opportunity to say if you're not a patreon member these are the kind of episodes that we do Mm -hmm. so we do a whole bunch of little shorts throughout the week depending on which level that you come in at and you can go to patreon.com and just check out our our page and see the different levels and what you get but we do a 
listener stories episode that's us reading listener stories and a couple of listeners come on and tell their story the first of the month and the 15th we do another bonus which is a full bonus about the same as what our regular show would mm-hmm. be and it's just like the regular show except no commercials nothing like that yeah and this is one that we did back in um was it i think it was september yep i know now it was it was september Okay. I remember that. But anyway, this one, uh, it involves Marilyn Manson, a couple other rock and roll stories. Mm-hmm. But um, this is actually a story that actually happened to Marilyn Manson. So oh, it's yeah. pretty much mm-hmm. it's pretty much his story of what happened and how he got into the occult and a frightening experience. So I think you guys are really going to like this. And because some of you on Patreon have already heard this episode, we like to add something extra to it. So I had Jess from Shoes, Booze, and Tattoos come on and tell us a very cool legend that I had never heard of. Mm-hmm. And she had heard of it because <laughs> it's one of her favorites. Well, that makes sense. Well, that's what I'm saying. But I had never heard of it. And she was just baffled that I had never heard of the story of um, um, Bob O'Reilly or Baba Ganoush or something like that. But anyway, I'll let her tell Baba you about Bowie. it. Baba Booey. I don't think it was Baba Booey either. <laughs> <laughs> But obviously, her show is really taken off now, yeah, and yeah. she comes on and tells this story, so you'll get a chance to to get a taste of what her show's like. Yeah, but that'll be on give her a listen right after we do this. We won't we won't have any um, Patreon shoutouts or anything because this is actually done a couple of weeks in advance. So yeah, but we'll catch all those up next week. Yeah, so enjoy. Hey guys, and welcome to the September bonus episode. Welcome to September, y'all. Because you know why? Because it's fall. Okay. I rhymed. <laughs> right back to your rapping. Um, you should see our living room. It looked like fall, like threw up in it. It's it does. so awesome. It's so awesome, awesome, awesome. I always wondered when people say it was fall season, if old people get really scared. <laughs> <laughs> well, swell. Let's just What's jump at, Well, you know what swell means. Swell. Okay. Let's just jump in it. That's what I'm saying. Let's just do it. All right. We get uh, a lot of requests for the rock and roll shows that we do. And to be quite honest, and I've mentioned this a whole bunch of times, those shows are re- literally have a cult following. Mm-hmm. Like, we, ha- I can't tell you how many people say those are their favorite episodes. Mm-hmm. But the numbers, like the number of downloads we do... <laughs> They actually go down whenever we do one. But I think most of the people who tell us that they love them are in the Patreon group. So we decided to let's do another rock and roll in the occult, but we're going to do it for you guys and not release it on the major one. Now, I will say this. Like a year from now when we decide to take a vacation again and we have to beg you guys to use one of these, it'll probably be the one that gets used. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's actually a really cool one. It takes a long time to dig up these rock and roll stories because there's not like a thousand of them. Yeah, but they're very stories. But in some of them, there's a bunch of them out there that are just a little bitty, not much in there. So I try to find the really cool ones, and I think I found one. Okay. Actually, I think I found a few of them. So let's start with the infamous Marilyn Manson. Ooh, because eyeballs are freaky. Yeah, there's a lot about him that's freaky. And I'm trying, I have a connection to where I may be able to get him on the show at some point in time. Stop lying. Nope, I'm not lying. Drew Franklin and Matt actually have his phone number. 
Oh, get out of here. They did. They shared a plane ride on the way home. He invited them back to their their house and stuff a couple of years ago. So they've got what? contact with him. So I'm trying to use. Well, that would be like really weird. Yeah. So plus I've sent him a message on Twitter and stuff you like did? that. Yeah. So we'll see. It's not like something that's going to happen immediately, but it is well, something that's I so cool, on. though. I had no clue. So anyway, so we're going to do this tonight. And I think you guys like it. So keep in mind, we don't necessarily believe that everything we say about these artists or the subjects, but this is just what's out there. So we're going to pass it along. So just like to just give that mm-hmm. little disclaimer before people start writing me. Oh, oh, that's not. Look, I'm just telling you what I've researched and found. And it's interesting. So today we're going to talk about Brian Warner of Canton, Ohio. Or as most of you know him by, Marilyn Manson. That's his name. You know, actually, the name of the band is Marilyn Manson. But everybody knows, thinks but, of but him, him yeah. as Marilyn Manson. So, yeah, yeah, his name is Brian Warner. And he's from Canton, Ohio, which is also home of the uh, Football Hall of Fame. Well, very good. <laughs> so, Marilyn's no stranger to controversy. As a matter of fact, he kind of revels in it. Mm-hmm. So that's what I kind of dig about him. For Some of his albums' names alone have caused Christians to cringe such as Antichrist Superstar. One of his nicknames is The Third and Final Beast, and he puts on a, a stage show that's similar to what we've seen in the past, from like Alice Cooper and uh, mm-hmm. you know Iron Maiden and stuff like that, mm-hmm. Ronnie James Deal, that's really graphic. You know, graphic and definitely lean toward the dark side. Mm-hmm. There's a website called, and I'm going to butcher this name because I couldn't find any way to pronounce it. It looks like it's Notka. Beret.com. It's a tribute to all sorts of Marilyn Manson's art and the occult. Oh, interesting. Like it, it, uh, it says it's a media site with exclusive content, which uncovers the occult imagery and symbolism with all the art of Marilyn Manson. This thing's like been going on for like eight years, and all it does is point out all the stuff in the, the songs band. and the oh, pictures and that he sings about and stuff and writes about. Yeah, and and artwork because Marilyn Manson is also an author. He's an artist. He's he does you know all kinds of stuff. So pretty pretty creative guy to be yeah. honest with you. Now the ironic thing about Marilyn Manson, or as he's been known, Brian Warner, is that he grew up in a very religious Christian household. Mm-hmm. He went to church with his mother at an impossible. Uh, Episcopal Church, and his dad was a devout Roman Catholic. Brian went to Heritage Christian School from first grade all the way up to 10th grade. Now, in that school, the teachers tried to show children what kind of music they should not listen to. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he just rebelled. <laughs> Brian fell in love with what he wasn't supposed to do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so then he transferred to um, Glen Oak High School and graduated from there in 1987. So we're only like a year apart from each other. Mm-hmm. So that puts us... Up to the the part where we're going to be focusing on today. So in 2010, Marilyn Manson did an episode of Celebrity Ghost Stories. And he told a very intense story about his first encounter with the occult that he had back in high school. So this goes back to 1986. He was 15 years old. He just transferred to this new public school. He got kicked out of the Christian school that he was enrolled in. And that's how he ended up there. So it wasn't just by choice. <laughs> he was kind of a loner, and uh, he was an easy target for bullies. So the first day of school, this guy named John, who was like the cool guy at school, he beat the crap out of him basically for no reason whatsoever. Now, he tried to say it was because uh, Brian was staring at his girlfriend, but the reality of it was he was just standing there, and the guy walked up and just punched him right in the face. Now, see, that's uncalled for. 
So the key from getting beat up every day, or at least on a regular basis, he kind of tried to make friends with this guy. So he started giving him his mom's diet pills to this guy, John, just to try to, you know, bond. And then they did like a lot of the same music, so they at least found some things in common. Such as they like music like Iron Maiden, Judas Priest were two of the bands that were Mm -hmm. really big back then that they were into. So a week or so later, this guy asked him if he could spend the weekend over at his house. And uh, his parents were going to be out of town. And he kind of thought that this was probably just another chance for this guy to kind of beat up on him. But he said, regardless, I think this is... a, a be a way that I can make amends, showing that I'm a kind of a cool guy, too, and we can just, you know, mm-hmm. get this thing all straight, and I don't have to worry about getting beat up all the time. Now, he said John's home was like more of a country-type setting than what his home was. He said the yard was like the size of a football field with this big barn on it, and the barn was pretty good distance away. He said there was uh, they were at the house, and this guy John says, hey, do you want to see something scary? And he said, like, yeah, you know, sure, even though he really didn't. But he wanted to go along with it. So they went out to the barn. He said John tried to make everything seem, you know, really mysterious and and even more dramatic than what it was. And he said it was kind of like his little part of the pool, the cool guy persona. Yeah. So he said he was trying to be, you know, the evil, dangerous guy that everyone was afraid of. And uh, they get to the barn and the guy John says, I'm going to show you something, but you cannot tell my brother. That was his big stipulation on it. So they go to the top of the loft. And at the very top was like a makeshift satanic altar. He said it had rotting carcasses of dead pigeons and dead rabbits. Oh, Lord. Brian said that the one thing that, you know, you're a kid and, and, and maybe you shoot a bird with a pellet gun or you step on a frog or something like that. He said, but these animals were like cut open and rotting. They said they were hanging and blood was everywhere, including soaked all in the hay. So John says that, he says, look, I've showed you this. Now, you got to make a promise that you're not going to tell anybody or you're dead. So Brian was scared as shit, obviously. And uh, John then pulls out this book called the Necronomicon. Now, the Necronomicon is a book that is supposed to be a magic spells that but the, this thing's kind of tricky to explain because the Necronomicon is not a real book per se. Now, H.P. Lovecraft, he mentioned it in a whole bunch of his stories way back in the day. And people have just said, okay, well, that didn't exist. It was mm-hmm. something made up. But then since then, there's been people who have came out and written books and called it the Necronomicon. And said, hey, this is the book. And it's got a bunch of spells and stuff in there. But um, like real people who practice magic and yeah. all this, they, they basically said that the book's a joke. That, so they're out there and they got these spells and stuff in there. But supposedly there's just all a bunch of made up crap. So that's the story on the, the Necronomicon. So anyway, they got this book out. And John tells him that he wants him to start reading. So Brian Warner's a little bit freaked out. But... He's reading it. Well, suddenly John's brother pulls into the driveway. And they know this because he's got his bright lights on. So it like lights up the whole barn. Yeah. And he's coming up. The guy gets out of the car and John and Brian get scared because they knew this guy was into some shit that he shouldn't be into. 
So they were obviously scared of what would happen if he caught him up there. So they took the book and they ran out. So they decided that they were going to read it, right? So he figured that it was John's way of just messing with him some more. So they walk into some woods and uh, they traveled along a path that was in the woods, not very far, they said. And then there was a clearing. Well, once you got into the clearing, they came across like a foundation of an old house. Now, this either used to be a house or it never was completely finished because it was just a, like the the concrete slab. Yeah. But there was a cellar door, not a basement, a cellar. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, I guess, to the side or something uh-huh. like that of, of what it would have been. So. John made him go down into the cellar and told him that he was going to read these incantations. No way, man. And he's going to read it by the, by the light of a big lighter. Uh-uh. <laughs> That's all he had. So Brian said that as he walked down these these rotting steps, that he could hear dripping sounds and he thought he could hear voices. He went made him go down there by himself? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, it was like literally just down some steps where he was just standing up, and you're talking just a little small flight of steps. So it's like him basically being in a hole. So you could sit right there and look mm-hmm. down. He could look down right there and see him. So John was scared. Brian was scared. He was holding this lighter, and it was burning his thumb because you know how lighters are there. Yeah. You're trying to hold him too long. He was reading the pages of, of what he said was obviously the worst thing that he could possibly be doing at that point. <laughs> He's fresh out of Christian school. He said he read the Bible enough to know that this wasn't good. So there was a part where he's thinking, you know, my life is going to be completely changed after tonight. So he believes that there's negative energies, there's positive energies. Mm -hmm. In general, there are just energies out there. And if you mess with it, something can happen. Yeah. So in the middle of all this, both got so scared that they stopped. He said that he could hear talking that wasn't them. So it was people, he said it was people whispering. And uh, he said he heard distinctly, do you believe in Satan? He said one of the, when one of the cantations said, open the door so we may enter repeat, repeating over and over. So, Obviously, we know what kind of door oh, that the incantations were talking about. That's so scary. So Brian said he dropped the book and the lighter, and he ran pretty much in fear. He said that uh, they were so scared that they, they just knew that there was definitely some kind of an evil presence there, and it scared the hell out of him. And he said uh, he felt like that he created something mm-hmm. by these incantations that he was out there saying. And he said, you, you know, there's just certain things that you shouldn't mess with in life unless you're ready to, to reap the consequences. Mm-hmm. So they went back to John's house. They pretty much run back. And they're sitting there talking about everything that happened. They're petrified. The next day, they decided they were going to go find this book. And he said they're walking through the path and all that stuff. Everything's exactly the same. And he said it wasn't scary during the daytime. He said, but when they get to that clearing... There was no house. There was no foundation. And they know for Wait. a fact they were in the exact right place. Okay, now did John hear the voices too, or did just Brian hear it? No, they both heard it. Oh, they both did. Yeah. Oh, gosh. And there was nothing when they went back? Nothing. 
the house and everything was gone. He says it's as if, as if it never was there to begin with. So Manson said that he underestimated the power of the occult and has become um, much worse of a person because of this incident, he believes. He said he can only imagine that this occurrence is what um, the reason for what he's become in life. You're kidding me. No. So you got this guy who grew up in a Christian house household. If you ever hear a lot of interviews and stuff with him, he pretty much makes it seem like everything he does on stage is strictly just a, an act. Yeah. You know, because so he don't and he's necessarily very, believe. Well, I mean, I guess he believes to an extent, but more of it is just an act for the. I think so. And, and he's a very intelligent man. Mm-hmm. Very intelligent. So I just thought that was a really cool ah, story. It was really good. So just think that the Marilyn Manson, that 10 years after this story, is when he pretty much was one of the biggest stars in music after that. So I wonder what old Johnny thought about all that. I don't know. You always bring up the stuff that it's like nobody else has ever thought of. <laughs> so was, that's, yeah, I just was curious, you know. That's our first story. So we're going to mix it up a little bit because I want to talk a little bit about the Rolling Stones. So the Rolling Stones, this is pretty interesting stuff. They released an album called Their Satanic Majesty's Request. And that was the first time. This was back in 1967. Mm -hmm. That's the first time that the Prince of Darkness himself was ever mentioned in the title of a major rock release. So they never used the devil, Satan, Beelzebub. They'd never used, nobody had ever used that in a title of an album until the Stones did it in 1967. Hmm. Has anybody since then? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Lord, yeah. Plenty of people. When you got the Ozzy and all, you know. Well, that's true. So, and we'll get into Ozzy a little bit later. So it was predominantly Mick Jagger who dabbled in the reading about the occult in the book, such as Taoist, The Secret of the Golden Flower, and Keith Richards, who created a defining moment in music's relationship with the devil in 1969 when he cut Sympathy for the Devil. In that song, which originally had the less memorable working title of The Devil Is My Name, that probably wouldn't have been as catchy, the Stones imagined Satan's appearances, obviously, at crucial moments in history. Now, playing up this whole satanic image, uh, Mick Jagger performed the song on the concert film, The Rolling Stones' Rock and Roll Circus, while he was shirtless and covered in fake devil tattoos. Well, there were also claims that the Church of Satan used this song as an anthem, but Mick Jagger's girlfriend at the time, Marianne Faithful, said that many people missed the complexity and the irony in the lyrics, including the, the salient point that Mick never for one moment believed he was Lucifer. Uh-huh. I, don't, I don't know who ever thought that Mick Jagger oh, yeah. was Lucifer. Now, whether they wanted to or not, Jagger and his band had created a massively influenced song. And Jagger said, I thought it was a really odd thing because it was only one song after all. It wasn't like it was the whole album and lots of occult signs on the back. People seemed to embrace the image so readily. And it carried all the way over to into heavy metal bands. Now, Aleister Crowley, as we discussed, had a major influence on David Bowie. Hmm. Now, he's a musician that had been interested in the occult since he was like a young teenager playing with tarot cards and performing exorcism rituals. Oh, gosh. David Bowie did that? David Bowie. Wow. And Bowie paid tribute to Aleister Crowley in his 1971 song, Quicksand. 
And in 1976, he admitted to Rolling Stone that rock has always been the devil's music. I believe rock and roll is dangerous. I feel we've only heralding something even darker than ourselves. So in Bowie's headquarters, had the uh, Ziggy Stardust character, and said he is perhaps popular music's most potent embodiment of the uh, archetype of the dying god. And the musician continued his interest in mysticism all the way up to his death in 2016. That's very interesting. And if you remember that last album he put out mm-hmm. right before he died, and he's got that song about going to heaven and yeah. looking down and seeing that stuff, it was, it almost kind of feeds right into it. Right. Now, Bowie's fascination with what he called the dark neverworld almost pales in comparison, obviously, to Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page. Um, we've talked about that. He reportedly attended seances. Of course, we knew he collected uh, uh, occult artifacts and stuff from uh, Aleister Crowley. And he lived in Boleskine House on the shores of Loch Ness. Now, Page's interest in the occult led to accusations about the Led Zeppelin and the Satanic Band. And uh, they had songs like Houses of the Holy that pretty much addressed the subject of the devil directly. Now, Page once said that mixing in Satanic influences would like an alchemical process but in 2007 he was 63 years old he told guitar world that he didn't like to speak about the occult anymore because the more you discuss it the more eccentric you appear to be so the links between music and and satan got even more extreme as the 70s kind of wore on and heavy metal bands began to gain a mass following and uh of course that's going to bring us up to the obvious of Ozzy Osbourne, because when he put an inverted cross on the inside gatefold of Black Sabbath's debut album and made references to black magic in the lyrics, Ozzy Osbourne may have simply been looking to outdo the the Mm -hmm. whole flirtations of other musicians. But Osbourne, who was not alone among the musicians of that genre and battling drug and alcohol addictions, talked publicly about his devil-worshipping songs and even referred to himself as the Prince of Darkness. He said, I was convinced I was truly possessed by the devil. I remember sitting through the exorcist a dozen times and saying to myself, yeah, I can relate to that. So what do you think so far? I think that is pretty wild. And for him to say I can relate to that, that's (laughs) some scary crap right there. Well, while we're on the subject of Ozzy and Black Sabbath, and I thought this was a a cool story. You know, I've been looking for this story for a while because I heard this a while back, but I couldn't find it, and now I finally stumbled across it. Uh So we're going to talk about Black Sabbath, the group. So the group's first first album not only, you know, had the same name, Black Sabbath, but it was also the the title track. So Uh you had the song, the album, and the name of the band were all Black Sabbath. Call me Bad Company. Yeah. So in the title track, there's a famous line that says, Figure in black stands before me. Now, apparently the story goes that this particular line of the song has been inspired by an encounter that um, Butler, who's a member of the band, claimed to have had in which he said he awoke suddenly from a horrific nightmare only to find that a ghost figure clad entirely in black had been standing near his bed as though observing him while he slept. No, I'm not down with that. Now, this would not be the only encounter with the strange ghostly figure in black that the band members would would actually report having. During the composition of the band's 1973 album, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, Tony Lomi also claimed that he had witnessed a ghost in the armory of the Clearwell Castle. 
in the uh, Forest of Dean. Now, later during an interview with Guitarist Magazine, Lomi recounted his sighting of the apparition in the Haunted Castle. He said, we were setting up the gear in the dungeons, and we were the only people that were there. It was myself and Geezer, or myself and Ozzy, and we were walking down the hallway, and we saw a cloaked figure coming towards us. We thought, who's that? It walked into a room, and we followed it to see who it was, and there was nobody there. We told people about it who owned the castle, and we thought they'd you know, think we were mad, but they just said, oh yeah, that's the castle ghost. Oh, so they've all seen it yeah. then. So it had been some former resident of Clearwater Castle that the band had seen on, on the occasion. Or could it have been the same strange figure in black that Baser Geezer Butler had talked about before? Either way, it became the inspiration for the band's anonymous first release. So, though they were likely not the one and the same, it is interesting to note that the presence of these ghostly manifestations around the band, especially with their darker and often foreboding mixture of rock with the darker aspects of the ritual and the occult. So, how about that for a little bit of uh, mixture? So, we've had Black Sabbath, some Rolling Stones, some David Bowie, and some Marilyn Manson. I wonder if like all the band don't believe in that stuff. I mean, how do you how do you deal with that? You know what I'm saying? We're talking about like in the, like the, the yeah, Ozzy and them, the yeah. Black Sabbath situation, right? I mean, what if some of his band members are like, "Man, you're just like nuts or something"? Why are you all into that stuff? You think that would cause problems between them? Well, I mean, if you go back to the Led Zeppelin deal, that did cause problems, not necessarily mm-hmm. the belief. But at one point in time, you know, after Robert Plant started having all kinds of problems, mm-hmm. supposedly he and Jimmy Page had a falling out because he blamed Jimmy Page for his dabbling with the occult mm-hmm. and causing the problems there. Because if you remember, he lost uh, um, his son, passed away at, I think, seven years old from an illness, a virus or something. While they were out on tour, they had a wreck. Him and his wife, it, it, he was in a wheelchair for a while. And, you know, so there was a bunch of things that was all involved in the Zeppelin curse that supposedly caused mm-hmm. a, a big rift between him yeah, and Jimmy Page. Yeah, that's true. I do remember that. Now, I just wondered, you know, how it would affect them playing and all that stuff. But maybe they just... Well, bands, there's bands all the time where people just hate each other. Mm-hmm. But they're still on stage and perform, mm-hmm. you know. Well, that's true. So they just get used to it. Same thing with like sports. It, and Yeah. Just, it's a job. Yeah, that's You don't have to like true. everybody at your workplace. Mm-hmm. Most people don't like you, so oh, at your workplace. Oh, nobody in my workplace don't like me. <laughs> that makes me sad. So that's going to bring us to our last story. And this artist is, I would say, more country. Well, it's country. Johnny Horton. And don't do it. 1814, I took a little trip. <laughs> Something, something, something down the mighty Mississippi. Why do you not never I can know never that remember part. that. <laughs> so no story that we're going to talk about is any more resoundingly strange than that of Johnny Horton, who not only predicted his own untimely death, but was even said to have contacted some of the living friends afterwards. <gasps> he predicted his death? Mm-hmm. Horton, according to his family and friends, had always claimed to be close to the spirit world, and just weeks before he died... Horton had been backstage in an event with Merle Kilgore, 
And he kind of shared a premonition about his impending uh, death with his friend. Specifically, Horton believed that he would be killed in an accident related to a drunken man. So shortly afterward, on the night of November 4th, 1960, Horton had been performing at the Skyline Club in Austin, Texas, and it was said that Horton kind of kept his distance from the bar and the club, fearing that one of the patrons might drunkenly start a fight with him and mortally injure him. So he kind of, he was even trying to be cautious of this. Yeah, looking out for himself. So the following night, he and his bass player, Tommy Tomlinson, as well as his manager, Tillman Franks, were kind of driving near Milano, Texas, uh, with Horton was the driver, and the trio approached the bridge right outside of the town on uh, Highway 79 when a drunk driver in a pickup truck swerved into Horton's lane, flying head-on into the Cadillac carrying the three musicians. Oh, my gosh. Of the three men, all were injured, but Horton would be the only one to die on his way to the hospital. Ironically, James Evan Davis, the drunk driver that hit him, was not injured in the collision. He was, however, charged with manslaughter due to his intoxication at the time of the accident. So eerily, the Skyline Club had not only been Horton's final venue, but also that of legendary Hank Williams. This, however, was the only one of several uh, interesting coincidences between the late country singers. Each of the men died in a Cadillac, and both had been married at one time to singer Billy Jean Horton. Oh, Wow. So this is really just the beginning of the Johnny Horton uh, strangeness, though, because prior to his death, Horton had told many of his friends he would try to contact them if he ever died prematurely. So sometime after Jimmy Horton's death, Tillman Franks was on route to Nashville, accompanied by singer David Houston. Now, according to Franks, the radio in their vehicle wasn't working properly. And hence, on this occasion, the two men were entertained only by conversation during their, their uh, drive. Suddenly, at one point, the CB radio began working only to reveal Horton's song, One Woman Man, playing right from the beginning. Franks described the sound of the recording as being different from a typical radio signal, though. Listening to it, you know, a jukebox playing loudly in a, in a roadside honky-tonk, the whole song played, and then the CB cut out again. Franks would later tell country music biographer Colin Escott that it was one of the eeriest things he had ever experienced. So Franks then shared the story with Johnny's longtime friend, Merle Kilgore, who told Franks that Johnny's telling you that the song is going to be a hit all over again. So Merle Kilgore would, in fact, also claim to have had seen evidence that Horton had made it to the great beyond. According to Kilgore's story, though, on the night that the two men had been backstage together, the last night Kilgore saw Horton alive, Horton told him that he wanted, if possible, to make contact with Kilgore from beyond the grave. In order to do this, Horton suggested that he would contact his friend with a strange, almost nonsensical phrase, the only thing he could recognize. The drummer is a rummer, and he can't keep the beat. (laughs) Nearly seven years after Horton's death, Kilgore reportedly received a phone call at his home one evening from a man with a northeastern accent, according to a biographer Mark Rickard in his book. These are my people, the the Merle Kilgore story. How does Merle Kilgore have his own story? And I don't even know who he is. I don't know. I don't know who he is neither. But the man on the telephone had been a member of a small group of spiritualists based in Greenwich Village, New York. And during several of their seance sessions with the group, uh, they had claimed that the spirit of a cowboy had visited them who called himself Wharton. This deceased cowboy also had a very peculiar message, apparently for a man named Kilgore 
With the help of a DJ at a local radio station, they had found out about Merle Kilgore and the late country singer Johnny Horton, not Wharton, but obviously Horton, and were able to obtain Kilgore's number through an associate at their station. Mr. Kilgore, there's more. The spirit of Johnny Horton said to give you a message, and the message is this. The drummer is a rummer, and he can't keep the beat. I would have freaked out. Kilgore dropped the phone at this point and said, Johnny, I got your message. (laughs) If true, it would certainly mark one of the most unusual sets of circumstances ever recorded in the history of American country music, providing only further evidence for the strange appeal for ghostly things that this particular genre seems to maintain. Oh, wow. He kept his promise. It took him seven years. What uh, it did, but you know, we probably had to learn how to do that. <laughs> you know, how you push an object through the wall or knock an object Are you talking about the ghost? Yeah. <laughs> How'd you know? <laughs> so it might, have, it might have taken a while, but that's really cool. So anyway, I thought that was uh, some really cool rock and roll stories. Mm-hmm. They all be crazy. Did you uh, come up with a rock and roll story to tell? No. Well, of course not. I will for another time. (laughs) Guys, it was fun. It was really fun. But that was all the rock and roll stories I had, so I have another quick little story to end on because uh, it's a short episode, and I don't like short episodes, so we're adding to it. All right. And we'll tell you that story right after this. That was an absolutely excruciating ride to Houston. I told you it was going to be long, nothing to look at, especially on Highway 59. Might not have been anything to look at, but there was something to listen Thank to. Thank you for that. Thanks to Parcast Network, we had a whole bunch of uh, listening activity that we could go. Always bouncing back and forth between their plethora of shows they got. Yeah. But we did focus on the way down, as promised, on their newest podcast, Extraterrestrial. Yes, the existence of extraterrestrial life has always captured our collective imagination for generations. And you know that because like the uh, Egyptians and stuff, they got pictures drawn in the caves and, that is amazing. and all that stuff. So, Isn't that the coolest thing? It is cool. So those who claim they've had encounters, they believe what they saw. They mm-hmm. think this really happened to them. But what does the evidence really show? Well, thanks to ParCast, you're going to find out because their new show, Extraterrestrial, which comes out every week on Tuesdays examines these stories in a critical eye. They analyze possible scientific explanations, and they determine what really may have happened in those instances. Extraterrestrial takes a deep dive into both those close encounters and potential government cover-ups, looking to answer whether or not we really are alone in the universe. And you know there's definitely got to be some cover-ups. We've we've covered a lot of stuff here. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just my personal opinion. Oh, but I agree. They're going to look into it and give you some perspective on yes, some of the very more famous ones. We especially love the very first episode, which was the uh, Barney and Betty Hill abduction, mm-hmm. not the... Betty and Barney Rebel. Yeah, not that, as you so eloquently put it last week. Betty and Barney Fife. Yeah. Well, her name wasn't oh, Betty. her name was Selma Lou. What are you thinking? Oh, I don't know. Anyway... <laughs> This was like the very first big-time abduction story that was mm-hmm. out there. So, I mean, to hear that, and it's a two-parter out there. So, yes. really, so you get a, you get all the information on there. It's fascinating. Um, you'll have upcoming episodes, obviously, on Roswell cover-up, the U.S. Air Force's Project Blue Book, which I absolutely mm-hmm. loved as a kid. The, when the TV show was on, now they've redone it. But Oh, have uh, they? Yeah. Did you know that President Truman had a secret committee to try to 
facilitate recovery of an alien aircraft no. called Majestic 12. Nice. Truman was on it, buddy. He Truman, it. don't play. Anyway, every Tuesday, new episode comes out. I'm excited. I can't wait for the next one to I come know. out. I know. You'll be hooked, let me I tell you. I'm already hooked. Oh, I know you are. Just like all the other shows I got. Yeah, but I'm just telling everybody out there, need to listen, because you'll be hooked. Search and subscribe to Extraterrestrial wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, that's E-X-T-R-A-T-E-R-R-E-S-T-R-I-A-L. Or visit podcast.com slash extraterrestrial to start listening now. Do it. You'll like it. Trust me. You know, we recently went to New Orleans and there was so many stories that we've already told about it, but there's so many more that still could be told. And there's one on, on the Beauregard Keys house that I thought we would do tonight. Okay, honey. So it's on the block of, of Chartres and Ursuline Street, which we spent plenty of time on Ursuline Street in the French Quarter, and it's just across from the Ursuline Convent. There's a Greek revival house out there, and it looks nothing like its next-door neighbors. It's painted a, like a pale, kind of a butternut yellow, and the house's uh, Palladian-style facade is a really pretty big contrast to the, the other homes that's around it. It's kind of bricked-off garden space. It's just another dignifying feature, so it stands out. Now, although it might be the architecture of 113 Rue Chartres that slows the kind of steps and catches your eyes. It's the history of the property that kind of reels you in and it piques your curiosity. Mm-hmm. Are you piqued? I'm piqued. So the Beauregard Keys House, which is a museum today, is most known for its famous past residents. Both of those are alive eh, and dead. The, all the residents? Yeah, well, I mean, some of the, it's got a bunch of past residents, some alive yeah, yeah. and some dead. Oh, so once upon a time, back in the early 18th century, the the lot at 113 Chartres Street, Street I said Street, <laughs> <laughs> was actually intended to be a weapons arsenal for the for the uh, city of New Orleans. Plans switched to course when the Ursuline nuns arrived from France, and in 1726, the King of France signed the whole block over to the nuns instead. So it's got to be a nuns' place. So it remained religious land until 1825 when Joseph Le Carpentier purchased the property. Le Carpentier had visions for the home that he wanted to have built there. But it seems that there were some minor squabbles because the first architect and the builder were let go only a few months into the contracts. I wonder why. I don't know, but they were replaced with Francois Courjolais. Jolais, I'm sorry. An architect from... My French is horrible. (laughs) He's an architect from Baltimore and James Lambert, who's a free free person of color from New Orleans at the time. So Lee Carpentier and his family lived for a time at the property, but in 1835, they moved to Royal Street, where we also spent a ton of time. And uh, they lived there with their daughter and son-in-law, Alonzo Morphy. So here's a fun fact. Lynn Carpentier's grandson was Paul Morphy, the youngest world-famous chess camp champion, and was born within 113 Chartes and later moved from his parents and grandfathers. So, there's a little bit. So, from a young age, Paul Morphy was able to beat chess players years ahead of him in age and reportedly a lot more skilled than he was. So, although Paul tried to make uh, make it as a lawyer, his infamy within the chess world was so much more famous that uh, no one took him serious in the lawyer status. So, I guess it doesn't pay to get typecast even in chess players. Oh, chess has seemed so boring. He was found dead in his bathtub, possibly from a heat stroke at age of 39. A heat stroke in his tub? Probably didn't have no water in it. 
That could be the oh, issue. Wow. So anyway, Le Carpentier sold 1113 Chute uh to the Swiss consul in New Orleans, and the Swiss immigrant John Merle was the one who bought it. It was Merle's wife, Madame Anne Philippon. These names. Marie, who was responsible for constructing the uh, garden that's there. She ordered ordered the two tall brick walls to enclose the garden space and added two iron-laced uh, windows so that the passerbys could peek through. Hmm. The people like to uh, be nosy. Yeah. Maybe she's running around naked. <laughs> in in she the garden. She wants to show her boudoir. So for those in the French Quarter, the garden might as well have been a jungle, as they called it back then, because the custom way was to place courtyards and gardens in the rear of the house for two main reasons. The first, the French Quarter stank to high heaven, and the strategically placed courtyards offered families a reprieve from the smell. Oh, I wonder why it stunk. Well, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) The second was so the Creoles Creoles believed that they were humble. So Madame Merle's garden no doubt ruffled the feathers of the Creoles, especially as the house itself was such a transitional blend of French and American design. Mm-hmm. So these people were kind of braggarts, apparently. Yeah, again. apparently. So Creoles, in case you didn't know, hated Americans, and that was a cultural thing. But once more, the Merles were also unable to hold on to the property due to financial difficulties, and it was sold. Some years later, in 1865, Dominique Lanta bought the property. And Lanta was a, uh, a grocer in the French Quarter and also had the consul general of Sardinia. That cannot be in New Orleans. Sardinia. <laughs> I've heard of that, actually. Uh, he saw the place as a fine investment property, so he'd rent it out, which he did until 1904, and he'd collect on the lease money every you know yeah. month. So Lanata's first tenant sealed the fate of the property. His name was Pierre Gustave Tutant Beauregard. Tutant. That's what it says. Molly dang. And he was considered of the first and most respected generals of the Confederate Army. When Beauregard had commanded troops in the Western uh, Theater. He kind of fought in the Battle of the Bull Run and the Battle of the Silo and the Siege of the Corinth, Mississippi. He was pretty popular. But the general had done even more for his beloved Confederacy. In 1864, Beauregard helped to save the city of Petersburg, Virginia, which, you know, he'd failed, would have allowed Union troops to kind of clear the passage to the capital of Richmond. Nevertheless, Beauregard and President Jefferson Davis had always butted heads, and the uh, general's career felt that tension acutely. Yeah. I just had a patient in our office today. His name was Pierre. Now, where is that? <laughs> I like that that's your contribution to the story. So he gets back to New Orleans after the war, and he's kind of hoping to find a new job, and he did. He became the president of the New Orleans, Jackson, and Great Northern Railroad. Well, that's a go. long-ass name for a railroad. You go. I'm sure they had it initialed out. <laughs> so upon his return, however, his wife's family had auctioned off her ancestral home, and Beauregard was left without a place to live. Well, what the crap? So mourning the loss of his bride, he and his two sons kind of moved uh, into Dominique Lanata's rental home at 1113 Rue Chartres. He continued to lease the property until 1868-69, before then moving his family to 229 Royal Street. So disregarding the fact that General Beauregard had lived at 1113 Chartres as a tenant, locals began to refer to the property as the old Beauregard house. Now, one has to kind of wonder how Dominique Lanetta 
felt about this or whether he'd simply been pleased to have the first-class general living under his roof for 18 months. When Beauregard passed away in 1893 after losing his battle with heart disease, his body was laid to rest in the Army of the Tennessee Vault in Mater Cemetery. Oh, whoa. I was going to say maybe he was in the very first cemetery that we went to. Well, then we got the Giacona family that lived there. Now, nothing perhaps could have prepared the locals and the neighbors at the uh, house for the events, which could unfold under the property's new ownership. The Lenatas sold the house to the Giacona family in 1904, all of whom were involved with the liquor business. A wholesale liquor business, if you get what I mean. I got you. (laughs) They operated as a wine cellar on the first floor, and for the first few years were living in the old Beauregard house. The Giaconas lived lavishly. Rumors began to spread that perhaps not all of it was seemed at the mansion on the Chartres. For although the house the Giaconas sold their liquor and made a cushy living, the Sicilian Black Hand, which is a sect of the Mafia in the New Orleans, felt that the Giaconas were impeding on their territory. So they were not paying their, their dues, so to speak. Mm-hmm. The name Black Hand referred to naturally their less-than-gracious extortion methods. So Pietro Giacona, the patriarch of the family, issued an uh, invitation to the four members of the mob, but it was also he and his son that issued their death. In the middle of the dinner, the Giacona stood, grabbing their pistols and opening fire. Three of the Black Hand dropped to the floor, lifeless, while the fourth was gravely injured. And he somehow uh, managed to escape back to, but he did not get very far. And he's crawling as far as he possibly could on the cobblestone streets outside. The assassinations had been conducted with Pietro's two young daughters just down the hall in their bedrooms. So despite their rather obvious connections to the mob, the charges against the Giaconas for murder was dropped in 1910. During this in-between period, they stayed at the house at uh, Rue Chartres, and the neighbors frequently commented that the old Beauregard house looked like an actual fortress, all boarded up and secured. Though the house belonged to uh, Pietro Giacona until 1925, when it was put up for auction, the men in the family had taken off way before that, years earlier, in matter of fact. They abandoned the house and their tax payments, and perhaps also the young ones in the family. Dang, they just left them there? According to an interview done at Loyola University in New Orleans a few years ago, the daughters who had heard the entire thing when they were in their rooms, they said that uh, they were left on their own after their father disappeared. My gosh, that's so so rude. To make money, they sold baby clothes and sold them in the French Quarter for profit. Wow. How old were they, I wonder? I don't know. But during this this, this time around, though, the house at 1113 Rue Chartres faced the possibility of demolishment. In 1925, the house was put up for auction. Antonio Manino, a Giacona by marriage, made the purchase. He threatened to tear it down if uh, preservationists did not step in. His plans for the property? To make it into a macaroni factory. Of course. (laughs) Macaroni? Well, that is the most random thing ever. Apparently his threats worked because soon enough local... Concerned citizen came forth to relieve uh, Manamino of the house. Now, while the Owens family made the initial purchase, they were the founders of the Confederate Memorial Hall. It was not until New Hampshire-born writer decided that she had just had to live there that the old Beauregard house was once again infused with revitalization. 
Huh. So in 1945, Francis Parkinson Keys moved in and began renovations. She re-added the, the parterre garden that had fallen into disrepair. It was there that she penned 30 novels, including Dinner of Antoine's and The Chess Players, which was about Paul Morphy. Keyes kind of wintered at the property until her death in 1970, and since then the Keyes Foundation has operated the property at the museum. Now, the history of the Beauregard Keyes House is a rich one, complete with murder and tragedy and lost and ghosts. You're dead right. The Beauregard Keys House is rumored to be one of the most haunted locations in New Orleans, where the paranormal activity is so real that it makes this two-century-old property come to life. I but mean, who, I would say because, I mean, it's been through a lot. But who's haunting it? Yeah, who is it? Well, the most common paranormal occurrences are reported sightings of Civil War soldiers. The ghosts are almost always dressed wearing their gray or butternut-colored uniforms. When they're spotted, they simply stand there. A vacant look on their face or an expression of of uh, just staring out into the distance. So within a few moments, their spirits dematerialize, slipping away into the night as if they were never there to begin with. Wow. It was after World War II that the reports of seeing uh, these ghostly soldiers came to light. Those passing by the house heard the distinct shots of gunfire. They heard unmistakable sounds of groaning and shouting, and they caught the scent of musket fire as it carried into the breeze. Victor Klein wrote in his uh, 1993 book, New Orleans Ghost, that men with mangled limbs and blown away faces swirl in a confused dance of death. Oh, my gosh. Horses and mules appear and are slaughtered by the uh, grape shot and the cannon. The pungent smell of blood and decay permeate the restless, restless atmosphere. You can smell that? They say you can smell that? That's what it says. So is it possible that the paranormal phenomenon is directly related to this attachment? Or are they perhaps the dead and wounded soldiers from the Battle of Bull Run or Battle Shallow? Because that was the bloodiest one of them all. According to Tim Nealon, who's the paranormal investigator and the founder of Ghost City Tours, paranormal attachment can occur when a person's spirit after death latches onto an object or living person that was by the scene of their own death. Mm. It goes without saying that General Beauregard fought in a great number of those battles, many of which saw a great number of deaths. He was literally surrounded by it. It's possible that one of Beauregard's possessions brought back with him to the house then became an attachment object for the spirits of the, of the few men who died around him during the battle. If the theory is correct, then it would explain most of the hauntings occurring at the Beauregard Keys house. After all, Beauregard's spirit is still reported to be seen at the museum as well. Francis Keyes once wrote that the Beauregard ghost pokes around at nighttime looking for his boots. Oh. It seems they buried the poor man in his stocking feet, and being a meticulous dresser, especially in uniform, he cannot rest until he finds his boots. Well, I understand that. How are you going to bury him without his boots? Is it likely that whatever spirits lurking within the Beauregard Keys house are dark enough to drive people out of their mind? Paul Morphy, while living at the, the house, seemed to suffer some sort of mental breakdown. Remember, he's got died in his bathtub. Yeah. One day, police found Morphy running down Ursuline Street. If the fact that he was naked wasn't enough of an eye catcher, there was also the minute detail that he was wielding an axe and threatening to kill the first person who stepped in his path. Ooh. Although the image skirts the line between amusing and shocking, the fact remains that something occurred in that house and it pushed him over the edge. Morphe was recorded as claiming that he had been possessed. But, if he had, by what? 
No accounts have since come out about an entity making itself known at the Beauregard Keys house, so it's quite likely that Morphe's public breakdown was just a personal one and driven by nothing more but personal demons and a vibrant imagination. The end. (laughs) 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 The end. So it's a little different story to kind of end on the Rock and Roll New Cult episode. Yeah. wonder why in the world, though, they would... Want to do a macaroni factory? That is the weirdest Once thing. Once again, the whole story, and you come out with the macaroni factory. <laughs> don't you think it's I don't funny? think he wanted to do a macaroni factory. I think he bought the house thinking that he could turn it into something, and he didn't really want to turn it into something. He just tried to pick something atrocious so they would step in and probably pay him more money oh. for it. Well, that makes sense. That's sure that's all it was. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for your patience. We love you so much, and uh, we hope you enjoyed the show. Ninja wanted to say hi, so he did. Love you guys so much. We hope you have a great weekend. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that one. And I mentioned this is every time we do one of these stories, just because we do the rock and roll and the occult type stories doesn't necessarily mean we 100% believe in everything that's being said. That's just the stories that are out there. So uh, we just kind of bring them to the forefront. Yes. <laughs> so are we ready to hear Jess's story of Baba Ganoush? Yes, Baba Booey. Either way, Baba something. Baba, <laughs> it's Baba something. I'm ready. Get your Baba on. Hey, guys. If you listen to our Patreon episodes, if you're a, a Patreon subscriber, you may have heard this young lady a couple of uh, weeks ago. She came on and sat in on one of the shorts with us. This is uh, Jess from Shoes, Booze, and Tattoos podcast. Jess, how are you doing this evening? Pretty good. How about you? I can't complain. Now, on that little short that you did, I pretty much told you a story about the Cleveland area. Right. And you responded a little bit, but you was pretty much playing the role of Tracy in that one. Tonight, I want you to give people a taste of what your podcast does. So you're going to tell us a story tonight that I think is pretty interesting. It's a Baba Ganoush or something. Baba Yaga. Uh, That might might be a food. That might be a Mediterranean food. Either way, it sounded fascinating. But I want to start off by telling people real quick who you are and what your podcast is and what it's about. Okay. Well, my name's Jess. I host the podcast Shoes, Booze, and Tattoos. It's everything that would be considered paranormal. It's true crime. It's conspiracy theories. It's lore, legends, paranormal activity as far as hauntings and ghosts. Everything that can't really be explained right now. And I want to point out real quick that the booze is spelled B-O-O-S as in ghost. Yes. Just tell us the story. Because you told me briefly about it, and I had never heard this one, so I'm fascinated to hear about it. Well, I think it's crazy you've never heard it. <laughs> this You'd be been... surprised what I haven't heard. <laughs> yeah, so far I am. Um, this is actually one of my favorite stories. I grew up with the legend of Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga is originally from Slavic folklore. She's She's described a couple of different ways in different countries but for the most part she's seen as a pretty neutral force she's not really good and she's not really evil she's kind of like a symbol of balance cause and effect what i always found most interesting were the stories that described her her appearance and her home 
The only big difference that I found as far as the countries that have these tales of her, the one story the maidens are, she is not just one person. She is actually one of a trio of sisters and they all go by the same name, Baba Yaga. That's really the only story that varies largely for her story. So I mentioned that I love the stories about what she looks like. She's described as being skeletally thin and an old hag who has long limbs, a very long pointed nose, iron teeth, and she's so ugly she is often described as being disfigured. Did you say iron teeth? Yes. Nice. Now she sounds like an interesting picture of an individual. Her home is actually even weirder as far as the descriptions go. Her home is actually just a small hut in the woods. Not so unlike a lot of the witch in the woods stories that we're used to. But the big difference is her hut actually stands on two giant chicken legs. And it likes (laughs) to wander around. So her hut is like a mobile home. Right. Just with giant chicken feet instead of wheels. (laughs) Okay. And around her home, there's a fence. This fence is made up of human bones, and there's skulls sitting on top where, like, the post lights would be. The eyes actually glow with a hellish fire, and that's her light. Well, it's good to have some skeletal light, I've always said. That's way better than the uh, fluorescent light. Oh, yeah, and it's much more flattering. (laughs) I guess you could call it a headlamp. That, I think, would be a perfect description of it. So so what does this young lady do? Old lady, I should say. Well, there's a lot of different stories as far as what she does. Um, normally, somebody comes to her for a reason. They don't just try to seek her out for nothing. Because in a lot of the stories, if you don't bring her something, or if you don't complete tasks that she asks you to do, she eats you. So when these people seek her out, most often they want knowledge, truth, or help. There is a really famous story. It's, it's the Vasilisa the Beautiful. Her story is very similar to that of like Cinderella. And this story was actually written right around the same time as the Grimm's fairy tales Cinderella. Her mother dies when she's young. Her widow, her widowed father marries a woman with two daughters of her own, the new stepmother. Is, of course, horrible, treats Vasilisa like a slave, give her, gives her lots of work to do. A big difference between the two, though, is Vasilisa, her mother, before she died, gave her a magic doll to keep with her. This magic doll helps her complete these chores. But one day when her father goes out of town on business, her stepmother ends up kicking Vasilisa out of the house, tells her she needs to go into the forest by their house, to seek out Baba Yaga. She has to go there and ask her for light because their fire had gone out. She was, of course, terrified. She knew all the legends of this Baba Yaga, the witch in the woods. She would eat people. She did find comfort with that magic doll. She heads into the forest. She eventually comes by Baba Yaga's house, and she tries to ask her for fire. Baba Yaga does agree to give her the fire, but she wants her to do some tasks first. These tasks would be impossible for any normal person to accomplish. Like, one of them, she had to sort a huge 10-pound sack of seeds 
in one night. And they were about the size of like a sesame seed. So very, very tiny. She had to pick out all the bad ones and all the black bits. She did get help from her magic doll and she completed all these tests. Baba Yaga got very frustrated. She planned to eat her when she couldn't fulfill these tasks. She had to go through this for about three days. All the while she was doing these things at night and cooking and cleaning for Baba Yaga during the day. After three days, Baba Yaga gives up. She gives Vasilisa one of the skulls from her fence and sends her on her way. She tells her that the fire in the eyes of the skull was magic and it would never go out. So Vasilisa heads home. She opens the door, walks into the house. Her stepmother and stepsisters are sitting in that main room. But when they look at the skull, all three of them burn to ashes. (laughs) Vasilisa freaks out. She buries the skull in the yard outside. And she ends up moving to the city where she stays with an old woman, takes up a job weaving cloth. The old woman is impressed with her work, takes the cloth to the Tsar. And he's so impressed by a piece of cloth, he seeks her out, marries her, and they all live happily ever after. Well, that's uh, certainly a twist. <laughs> right. And there, there are tons and tons of stories of Baba Yaga. This is just one of the ones that I grew up with. I remember my great-grandma actually reading me this story. Some of the ones that I really like, too, other than this one, were the stories where Baba Yaga would fly around. It, like uh, on a broomstick? You would think. That's what we kind of picture with most of the tales of witches. But she rode around in a mortar and wielding a giant pestle. I have no clue what either of those things are. You use them to grind up herbs. Oh. It's like a little bowl with a rounded end sticked on it. Okay, I know, I, I know what you're talking about. I just didn't know <laughs> what it was called. It's just like that little thing for the honey. You always see when you see honey on the commercials, they've got that little wooden stick with the uh, end on it. Yeah, yeah. That they use for honey. And yet I've never seen one of those in my life. I, I everybody I use. Everybody I know uses honey straight from one of those little bears or something. Yeah. <laughs> Plastic was what you squeeze. In a little bottle or in a jar or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you haven't seen Baba Yaga in any movies or TV or anything? Not that I know of. She she actually pops up in a lot of them. Well, if it's like a medieval type period type movie, I probably uh, haven't seen it. I ha- I have a um, a thing about watching period movies. I've never seen The Gladiator because I don't like movies like that and Romeo and Juliet. If, if it's you know, I, I'm just not into movies that uh, involve certain time periods. Yeah, I'm not super into those either, especially if they try to talk like they would have then. Right. That's even worse. That's even worse. But she actually made appearances in, like, the Hellboy comics. There's a Canadian TV series, uh, Lost Girl. That's on Netflix, and it's actually a really good show. They have a lot of the paranormal creatures and everything in that. She pops up in there. And there's another movie on Netflix, Don't Knock Twice. She's actually the main the main paranormal creature in that one, but they kind of stretch her legend a little bit. Um, she's not the classic Baba Yaga. She's a sleep demon in this one, but she's in video games, comic books, and she even made an appearance in the game Dungeons and Dragons. I'm just out of the loop, I guess. I guess. I'm my Yugoslavian lore. <laughs> <laughs> or Slavic lore. Slavic lore. Well, Jess, I appreciate you enlightening us on uh, something that I'm sure most of the listeners probably have heard of, and I just 
I'm always behind on stuff like that. But tell everybody how they can catch your show, how often it comes out, and how they can reach you on social media. Oh, sure. My show comes out every Tuesday. You can find me pretty much everywhere you get podcasts, um, Stitcher, iTunes, CastBox, pretty much anywhere. Um, you can reach me on social media, Shoes, Booze, and Tattoos on Instagram and Facebook, SBT Pod on Twitter, or you can send me an email, shoesboozeandtattoos at gmail.com. Perfect. Thanks for coming on and sharing with us. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to talking to you in the future. Of course. Talk to you then. Well, guys, thank you so much for giving it a listen, and uh, hopefully you were happy with the production this week, even though it wasn't your normal, but it kind of was, since that's the episodes that we do, so you can see that the uh, Patreon episodes are a lot like our regular episodes. Yeah, we appreciate y'all listening. And we appreciate Jess coming on. Um, yes. Go check her show out. You'll be happy with it. Trust me. It's very polished show, even though she's only got six or seven episodes out. I especially like the one uh, where she's talking about Witches, herbs, and spells. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. You learn a lot of cool stuff in that oh, one. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, and, and I'll tell you how this came about. We were talking on the phone one day, and she said something about spells or something, and I said something about I have newt. Uh-huh. Because you always hear that, right? Oh, yeah. I, I have newt. And she said, that's mustard seed. I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, everything was in code for witches, so it wouldn't really an eye of a newt, and it wouldn't really this, and it wouldn't really that. So she actually goes through on this episode because she was trying to come up with an idea. And I said, that's mm-hmm. what you should do. You should talk about all that. So she done a, did a whole episode where she talks about all the herbs and what they're supposed to be for, like rose quartz. And, well, see, that uh, makes me feel much better if I have to drink a potion that's not really <laughs> avenue. Yeah. So, and she, but she went through all these different things that you always hear of and what, so it, cool. and what it actually is. Yeah. And and a lot of the stuff was just simple stuff like mm-hmm. parsley and mm-hmm. uh, sage and stuff like that. So yeah, it was really Aww. cool, really informative episode. It's actually one of my favorites of the ones she did. Very nice, very nice. So thank you guys so much, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>